Good morning. How many of you suffer from acrophobia? Know what acrophobia is? A fear of heights? Anybody have a fear of heights? If you have a fear of heights and you're stuck at a high place, what's the one piece of advice that someone gives to try to keep you from panicking? Don't look down. While it's a great piece of advice, it's also one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? A few years ago, my family and I descended upon Gatlinburg, Tennessee. We rented a cabin in the Smoky Mountains and just spent a week there resting and relaxing. And if you've ever been to Gatlinburg, you know that one of the attractions is Sky Bridge, which is this large suspension bridge. I think it's the largest suspension bridge in North America, high up in the mountains. And in order to get to it, you have to ride like a, a ski lift. And this lift is just a, a two-seat contraption hanging from a wire and a bar that holds you in, supposedly holds you in. And as you're making your way up, you can see it's, it's pretty high, and your feet are just dangling. There's not a lot to really hold you in, and, and my wife said the whole way up, I, I'm closing my eyes, just let me know when we get there. And when you finally get to the top, and you get out, you're at Sky Bridge, and you walk across this suspension bridge, and it's, I wouldn't say it's rickety, but it sways and moves as the people go across it, and, and you, can, you can look down and, and see how far you would fall and how dead you would be if you did fall. And there's, there's a place in the middle of the bridge to make matters worse. This is me standing on a piece of plexiglass, because I'm not afraid of heights, standing on a piece of plexiglass, looking down, taking a picture, and my wife wouldn't do that either. But that makes matters worse, doesn't it? If you're scared of heights, you have this piece of plexiglass that you can look down and see the peril that awaits if you were to fall. You know, if you're afraid of heights, looking down is the best piece of advice. But I don't, I don't think as Christians, that's really our problem. I think we're quite the opposite. We don't have acrophobia. We want to stay on our high place. You know what we have? We have bathophobia. You know what bathophobia is? Not afraid of baths. Bathophobia is being afraid of depths. And that's kind of where we reside. We don't like being at the bottom. We don't like those valley experiences. We want to stay on the mountaintop. We would rather be there. We don't want to come down. Not for anything, but many of you have lived or are currently living in the depths. You know what it's like to come down off that mountaintop. You're lower than low. You're at rock bottom. And for all of us who are at that high place, we may hear, don't look down. And that's fine and good because we don't want to look down. We like where we're at. But if you're at rock bottom, well, the only way is to look up, and that's really the best piece of advice I can give all of us. Whether you're in a valley or not, look up. Look with me at Numbers chapter 21, and in Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 6, this is what we read. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord, against you, intercede with the Lord that he will remove the serpents from us. And Moses intercede for the, interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and put it on a flagpole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a flagpole. And it came about that if a serpent bit someone, and he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So let's talk about viruses for a few moments. How's that for a segue? 
We know a little bit about viruses after the last year, year and a half, don't we? I've never seen so many epidemiologists on Facebook. It's like everyone became a virus expert overnight, right? If you know anything about viruses, you know that they need a host, that they don't have the enzymes necessary to carry out or sustain life on their own. So they need a host cells. They need, they need life in order to sustain their life. So from what I understand, this is what Google taught me. Well, what I understand, a virus needs a host to live and replicate. Outside of a host cell, a virus cannot function. So when infected, a host cell is forced to rapidly produce thousands of identical copies of the original virus. And once that new virus is made, it breaks open the host cell and destroys it, which leads to the person being infected and having symptoms. And those symptoms can be mild or they can be severe. They can even cause death depending on how major the virus is. The devil works like this. You might remember several months ago in our series on spiritual warfare, we talked about how the devil works by consent and cooperation. It needs, uh, the devil needs a host. He needs a vehicle. He needs a character. He needs permission to bring hell into your life. He needs you to give him consent to ruin your paradise. Peter describes him as a roaring lion, prowling around seeking someone to devour. Well, he's also, aside from a lion, he's also a virus. He's seeking a host. He's seeking a carrier. He wants to infiltrate your system and not just cause you symptoms, but to cause you death. But thankfully, many viruses can be minimized and even eradicated through a vaccine. The virus is manipulated, it is weakened, or a dead strain is injected into the person, and that vaccine imitates the virus, the infection, which prompts the immune system to recognize it and to attack it. And then, later on down the road, these antibodies, they develop a memory. And so when they see that virus again, they recognize it, they remember it, and then they attack it, they stave it off. So if, if Satan is the virus, if what he brings is the illness of sin, then the vaccine has to be Jesus, doesn't it? He came to this world as God's cure. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The idea of a vaccine was developed by a guy named Jenner many years ago, like 1796, but God's been using this vaccine for a whole lot longer. Now, you go back to Numbers chapter 21. While we refer to the book as Numbers, the Jews call it by a different name. They have a name, a little complicated Hebrew word, Biedmar, which means in the wilderness. They also refer to it as the fourth book of Moses. And I like the name in the wilderness better because the name Numbers seems to focus on the census and the book of Numbers is about a whole lot more than that. There's a much bigger theme to the book of Numbers. So we're going to call it in the wilderness. And if you look at the book of in the wilderness, you notice that one of the major themes is wrath and punishment. Israel tries the patience of God over and over again, and as a result, the Hebrews lost their lives because of their sin and disobedience. However, another major theme that you see is that of restoration, of hope. God provides a pathway back to him. That while there is wrath and punishment for those who disobey, there's also a pathway of restoration. And we see that theme not only in Numbers, but throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the New. That is a theme that carries out the story all the way through the Bible. Now, there's something else I want to mention. I want to 
kind of exit off the interstate for a second. We'll get back on real quick. But another thing that I think we tend to overlook or get wrong, to be honest with you, is the major uh, place that the land or the earth has in the story of Scripture. And we see it in numbers. We tend to think that the material doesn't matter. That all that matters is the non-material. The earthly is insignificant, while the eternal is all that matters. And the Bible does not teach that at all. Not in any way, shape, or form. In fact, the Bible shows us over and over again that the earth, the land, plays a prominent role in God's story. For instance, God wants to give the land to his people as a permanent inheritance. God wants his people to be blessed by the land. God wants the land to be pure and undefiled, absent of violence. And above all, God wants to dwell in the land with his people. Notice this, Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 and 21. So the Lord said, I have forgiven them in accordance with your word. However, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's just one example. I don't think we always recognize or realize how prominent the character of the earth is in this whole story. This idea that the material doesn't matter, that it's only the non-material that does, God doesn't teach that. Buddhism teaches that. Christianity doesn't. God doesn't. Over and over again, we see that the theme of the earth being filled with the glory of God is brought to the forefront. Now, another seamless segue. According to a website known as Uper, the fear of heights is number two on mankind's top ten list of fears. Number one is social anxiety. You could include in that getting up to speak in front of people. Any idea what number three is on the list of mankind's biggest fears? It is ophidophobia. Know what ophidophobia is? It's what Indiana Jones suffered from, a fear of snakes. And what we have right here in Numbers chapter 21, or in the wilderness chapter 21, is what I'm going to call snakes on a plane, P-L-A-I-N, right? Because that's what you see here. Look at it with me again, Numbers chapter 21, in the wilderness chapter 21. The basic premise is this, God has had enough of the rebellion of his people. And so he's going to have them wandering in the wilderness. And the Israelites find themselves smack dab in the middle of an Alfred Hitchcock type horror movie. Snakes everywhere, biting people, them falling dead. And it's as if God is saying, okay, well, I parted the Red Sea, I sent the 10 plagues, and that wasn't good enough for you. I sent manna and quail to you, and you weren't happy about that. I, I gave you water, and you griped and complained about that, so let's see how you like snakes. And of course, they didn't like the snakes, because they bit them and they died. Now, what we see is them cry out to Moses for intercession. They want him to do something about it. They obviously didn't want the snakes biting them and killing them. And so they cry out to Moses for him to go to God and intercede for them. And so Moses is told to take and craft a bronze serpent, stick it on a pole. And when the people look down and see that they got bit, they can look up and find healing. And this is God's way of bringing them to restoration. Look up and you will live. But this is an important point. Throughout Scripture, we talk about who wrote this book, who wrote that book. We talk about what's the major theme of this story or that story in Scripture. It's all about God, right? 
Ultimately, God wrote this. This is a story about God. It's an autobiography, a story about God written by God. And so that's the most important point. It's not the bronze serpent that provided healing. It was God. And that's the most important thing to remember. God is the one in charge. God was the vaccine. They looked up to God from the depth of despair. And what they found was this bronze serpent, but acting behind the scenes was God who made them well. Like a virus that is manipulated and weakened or killed and then injected into the system, the very thing that harmed the people was the agent of their healing. Now, if you look at John chapter 3, Begin in verse 1, this is what we read. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus responded and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not know or understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you people do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You with me? Pay attention. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. Do you get goosebumps when you read that? And you're like, not really. What are you talking about? Jesus is connecting the dots for Nicodemus. He was a teacher of the law. He knew the law better than anyone, perhaps. And Jesus is saying, but you don't know this. You may know the law, but you don't understand the story. Let me connect the dots for you. And Jesus moves Nicodemus from Moses to himself. Moses was a deliverer with a divine message. Jesus is a deliverer with the divine message. Moses communicated the word of truth to people. Jesus communicated the word of truth to people. Moses was leading God's people into the promised land. Jesus is leading God's people into the kingdom. Moses' warning was to obey the word of truth or else. Jesus' warning is to obey the word of truth or else. The rebellious in Moses' time failed to enter the promised land. The rebellious in Jesus' time will fail to enter the promised land. Those who looked up at the bronze serpent lived. Those who look up at the cross live. But again, it's not a serpent. It's not, it's not a cross. It's not the image that saves. It is the person. It is God. It is Jesus. Rescue comes by looking up and reaching out to the only one who can save you. And it's also important to recognize the fact that God used fiery serpents as a form of punishment. 
Do you know anything about the role of snakes in Scripture? You only think about the role of a snake in Scripture? You think about the garden? You think about the fall of man? You think about how Satan slithered his way in and brought sin into the world? But what is his ultimate fate? What happens to the serpent? His head is crushed, right? And who crushes it? Jesus does, the Savior, the Rescuer. He claims victory over the serpent and thus over the virus and over illness, and the serpent ends up fiery himself. God turns curse into victory. He used the very thing that brought about death to his people as the means for healing his people, thus allowing his absolute and authority over all things to be seen and on display. Those bitten by serpents looked to a serpent healing. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, that's just a taste of what is to come. That just is a taste of, of, of what is on the horizon. That's a prototype. I'm the real deal. Snake on a stick is good. Cross on a Savior is even better. You know, we're all snake bit. We can admit that, right? We've all been snake bit. We're all snake bit with sin. I mean, Paul tells us that in the book of Romans. To some degree, we've all made mistakes that have cost us. Some have made mistakes that are way costlier than others. But all of us have made mistakes, and all of us have endured the consequences of those mistakes. Some of those mistakes are because of our own stupidity. I love when people say, well, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, and sometimes it's because you're stupid. So you have to recognize that, and you have to own that. All of us, though, have suffered the consequences of living in a fallen world as well. We didn't ask for trials or tribulations. We just deal with the hurt and the heartache and the hang-up because it was brought upon us without us asking, without us really doing anything. That's the nature of living in a fallen world. But to some degree, all of us have been snake bit. And when you get bit, it's hard not to think about it. When you get bit, it's hard not to look down, right? When you get bit, it's hard not to worry about it. And some people don't just worry about it. Some people lose sleep over it. Some people develop an ulcer because of it. Some people even consider taking their own life because of it. We've all been snake bit. And many people are constantly looking down. But I think if Moses and Jesus teach us anything about being snake bit, they teach us that when we find ourselves in the snaky places of life, don't look down. Look up. Did you notice that God didn't take away the serpents? You know, Moses interceded, but God didn't take them away. God didn't remove them. Instead, God offers an antidote that involved another snake. If you get bit by a rattlesnake in West Texas and you go to the hospital, you know what they're going to give you? One of the first things they're going to give you? They're going to give you venom from a snake exactly like the one that bit you. And that's what God did. He didn't remove the snakes. He gave them an antidote that included something very similar to what they're being bit by. It was a bronze serpent. They looked up and they were healed, but it wasn't the serpent that was healing them. It was God. Don't look down. At least don't focus on the down. Focus on the up. We live under the curse, and God never promised to remove the snakes from our lives. You can say, well, life's not fair. God never promised you life would be fair. That's something that you are either taught or believed your whole life, but God didn't teach that. Jesus never taught that. Jesus said, if you follow me, there's going to be hardship, there's going to be heartache, perhaps even death. God never promised to remove the snakes, but he did promise that if you look up, there's healing, there's rescue. Look at his words to Nicodemus again. 
And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. Then notice what he says right after this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You know what this says? It says that God kept his promise. He kept the promise that he made to Israel. He's kept the promise that he's made to us. The deliverer has come. The vaccine has arrived. The cure is now available. Jesus is undoing the curse of sin and death. And listen to what Paul says again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became the curse. He came the antidote. He took sin and death so that we could be healed. Maybe you think, so what? Or maybe you've heard that so many times it doesn't resonate. But sometimes we need to hear something over and over again because, I don't know, if you're like me, my my heart and my head can be pretty thick. Hear it again. Jesus is the cure for what ails us. He is the only source, the only rescuer, the only deliverer we will ever need. And think about this. Because of everything I've just said, whatever you deal with in life, you deal with it as a winner. No matter what you're dealing with, you deal with it as a winner. Children of God can have hope that in the snaky places of life, when you're at the depths, you look up and you see hope. You see grace, you see mercy, you see rescue. That no matter what you're dealing with, the heartache, the hurt, the hang-ups, whatever it may be, there's hope. There is rescue. We all, strug- we all struggle, but we all rise up. We all fall down, but we're all lifted up. We all die, but we all live. Kevin Berthea was down, really down. His daughter was born premature, and uh, the medical bills were mounting. He didn't see any way that he could get out from under the enormous debt. And so he decided to go to the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, he'd never been there. Didn't even know where it was. He looked it up, and he made his way to the Golden State Bridge, or Golden Gate Bridge. And so he gets out of his car, and he gets on the sidewalk that runs along next to the road on the Golden Gate Bridge. And he looks over, and he sees a California Highway Patrolman by the name of Kevin, also Kevin Briggs. The two make eye contact, and then Kevin Berthea steps over the four-foot protective railing onto a skinny pipe that surrounded the north tower of the Golden Gate Bridge. And he stands on the skinny pipe with his back to the bay, and he grabs on to the railing and thinks, I can end this right now. It could all be over with, no more worrying about the medical bills and all that. Here's a picture of that day. He's standing on the skinny railing. He's got his fist or his hands clutched on uh, you know, the, the protective railing. It almost looks like he's in prison, doesn't it? It kind of was. A prison of his own making, a prison of, of, of doubt and depression, a prison that, you know, he, he seemed like he couldn't get out of because of the mounting medical bills and all the things going on in his life. And there is the highway patrolman, Kevin Briggs, talking to him. And after an hour and a half of talking with Kevin Berthea, Kevin Berthea steps over the railing, 
back to safety. And those two developed a bond that is still alive and well today. And here's what Kevin Berthea said about that moment. He said, I was overwhelmed with everything. It's like everything that I was ever bothered by, everything that I was ever dealing with came up on that one day, and I just felt like a failure. All I got to do, he said, is lean back, and everything is done. I'm free from all this pain. Sometime later, the two were reunited. And Kevin Berthea said to Kevin Briggs, he said, the greater picture that I needed to see is that I needed to be here for my daughter. You know, she's 10 now. And had you not been there, I wouldn't get to see her grow up. We all look down. We all get focused on our faults and our failures. We've all been snake bit. We've all been at rock bottom probably at some point or close to it. And maybe you're there right now. But my best piece of advice that I can give to you and to everyone in this room is don't look down. And if you do look down, quickly look up. Look up and find healing. Look up and find hope. Look up and find grace. Look up and find mercy. Look up and find forgiveness. Look up and find rescue. The best place that you can be is on that mountaintop. But unfortunately, we don't always stay there, do we? We get knocked down. We, for whatever reason, we find ourselves in the valley. And if you find yourself in the valley this morning, look up. Let us help you. If we can pray with you, if you want to study the Bible with someone, if you need encouragement, maybe you're ready to begin a daily walk with God. Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Whatever your need is this morning, let me be a Kevin Briggs to you. Let me help you come over that railing and come forward as we stand and as we sing.